Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, that sounds exciting, doesn't it? You might as well not go home, just keep your seats, otherwise they'll all be occupied tonight, won't they? I'd like to turn to Acts chapter 2, and uh, we're going to be looking on these three mornings at the birth of the church, birth of the mission of the church in this great chapter in Acts chapter 2. I I mentioned yesterday that the the, uh, kind of phrase that came into my mind as I prepared this week is that mission is from the heart of God, through the heart of the church, into the heart of the world. And if you take the first two bits, or the first bit and the last bit of that statement, uh, there's no question that God's heart is a heart for mission. In eternity, in eternity, the Father loved the Son, and he planned to redeem a people. So mission doesn't begin in time, it begins in eternity. It is the heart of God. And there's no question that the world needs the gospel. The gospel needs to get into the heart of the world. In other words, there are no no no-go areas for the gospel. There's no part of this world, there's no culture, there's no country that doesn't need Christ. There's no uh, group of people who have a religion which is so satisfactory that it makes them right with God. The whole world needs the gospel. And so the first part and the last part of the statement is very clear from the heart of God into the heart of the world. How does it get there? And the question is is, is a simple question, and the answer is very profound. It is through the heart of the church. And very often it's the church which is the weakest link. The church is a missional organization. The birth of the church and the character of the church and the nature of the church must always be, if it's a New Testament church, to take the gospel outwards. That's the purpose that the church exists. That's why we exist. And if we fail to see that, then there is no plan B. There's no other way in which God is going to reach the world. There's no other way in which God is going to build his kingdom except through his people. And so the challenge this week is to look at that, and that's why we're looking at the church. If you look at Acts chapter 2, this is one of the great chapters of the Bible. It describes one of the great events in history. It's an event which is quite unique. It's in line with the other great events that we read of in the Gospels. The Incarnation, God becomes a man. The Cross, the Atonement, the death of Christ for our sins. The Resurrection, the Conquest of Death. The Ascension to Heaven. And then Pentecost. And these events are are, are, are part of a sequence. There's a sense in which Pentecost is the climax of that sequence. As we'll see tomorrow morning, everything is leading up to this moment in time when Jesus ascends to the Father, sits at the Father's right hand, receives the gift of the Spirit, and pours the Spirit upon the church. People have compared Acts chapter 2 to Genesis 1. Here is a world which is chaotic, and God's Spirit comes and breathes life, and suddenly there is a living world. And what happens on the day of Pentecost? The church, the New Testament church of Christ, is born by the Spirit's breath. Luke, of course, has written two books. Luke uh, has written a gospel and the Acts of the Apostles. The, the gospel describes three years of the ministry of Jesus on earth, whereas Acts takes up the, the next part of the story, the 30 years of the ministry of the church. 
And if you look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, you'll see there that uh, Luke simply carries on from what he's been saying in the gospel. And he says that this is what I wrote in the gospel about what Jesus began to do. By implication, that means it acts is what Jesus continues to do. The church is Jesus' continuing ministry in the world today. Acts chapter 1 is transitional. Acts chapter 1 is preparing for Pentecost. Acts chapter 1, they're told to wait for the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, they receive the Spirit. Acts chapter 1 anticipates the birth of the church. In Acts 2, we witness the birth of the church. In Acts chapter 1, they're equipped for mission. In Acts chapter 2, they're empowered for mission. In Acts chapter 1, the church is held back. In Acts chapter 2, the church is sent out. And as we look at this chapter together, we're going to do so in three sessions. This morning we're going to look at the meaning of Pentecost. Tomorrow we'll look at the message of Pentecost. And on the last day we'll look at the mission of Pentecost. So this morning we're going to look at verses 1 to 13. Let me read and then quickly pray and then we'll come to God's word. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in his own native tongue? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. And this is the word of the living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that the the, the birth of the church was by the power of the Spirit. And Lord, as we come to your word, we thank you that it's true and inerrant and infallible and authoritative and, and all of those things. But oh God, we need your Spirit to come this morning and open your word to our hearts. We need your spirit to come and, 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 and speak to us the truth of your word, that it might enlighten us, that it might transform us, that it might excite us, that it might change us. Oh God, come amongst us today, we pray, by the power of your spirit. We confess today, Lord, that we need you. We need you and we pray for your presence now in Jesus' name. Amen. I began ministry over 30 years ago in a little uh, church in a place called Chippenham in Wiltshire. It was a very rural area. The church had been brethren in its background. It had brethren roots, but they decided as they were almost on their last legs that they'd uh, call a pastor. So I was called from within the congregation to be the minister of the church. It was a, a small church. It was struggling. My wife and I were the youngest couple. And so I prayed and thought a great deal about how I should uh, conduct my ministry. And it became very clear to me that, that the most important thing was Bible teaching. And, and teaching the Word of God and encouraging the congregation. And so I put a great deal of emphasis on the preaching of the Word of God. And that was the mark, I guess, of the church. And slowly the church grew and the Lord was very gracious to us. In the town, there was a little Christian bookshop. Uh, and it was run by a, a, a group of Pentecostal people. They were lovely folk and we had good fellowship with them. Um, uh, but it was pretty much kind of charismatic or Pentecostal in a lot of the books that they chose. 
One day I was in the bookshop and there was a young man who'd just arrived in Chippenham and he was looking for a church. And he'd gone into the bookshop and he'd asked for the lowdown on the different churches in the town. And, and they'd obviously given him a description of the different churches, the different options that he could go to. And then I arrived. I didn't tell him I was the pastor. We got into a conversation. He said, and which church do you go to? And I said, well, I go to a church called Ladyfield Evangelical Church. He said, oh, yeah, I've heard about that church. That's the church that teaches the Bible but doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit. That's the church that teaches the Bible, but doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, what I guess he meant was, we weren't Pentecostal, we weren't charismatic, and I'm not, I wasn't then, I'm not now, I'm not a Pentecostal, I'm not a charismatic. Now, now, if you are Pentecostal and charismatic this morning, I hope I'm not going to say anything at all that will insult you, okay? I hope that everything I say today will be kind of centre of the line, and nobody will get upset, um, Actually, preachers that don't upset anybody are pretty bad preachers. But I'll, I'll try and make sure I don't do it by an offensive way. But, but I'm not charismatic. I'm not Pentecostal. But let me tell you this. When I heard those words, it was like a, a, a sword to my heart. Because I desperately uh, had come to the point in my own ministry where I recognized that the desperate need we have for the Holy Spirit. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, there can be no church, there can be no mission, there can be no conversions, there can be no anointed preaching, there can no be, be, be no uh, spiritual growth, there can be no holiness, there can be no hope of heaven, there can be no comfort in, in difficulties. The church needs the Holy Spirit. And actually, when it comes down to it, there's no controversy between the Bible and the Spirit. In fact, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. In a marriage, I love to conduct marriages, and you kind of stand at the front, and the, and, the, and, the, and the wife comes down the aisle, or the bride comes down the aisle, and the man's sat there. Everybody looks at the bride. I look at the man because he's kind of amazed as he sees this young woman coming down and thinks, wow, doesn't she scrub up well? I didn't know she could look like that. And, and they stand together, and they make these promises, and then you stand at the moment, which is kind of the climax of the service. Those whom God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And it's like that with the Word and the Spirit. I'm guessing that the majority of my congregation this morning would agree with me on the importance of God's Word. I would describe myself, if I needed a label, as a conservative evangelical. And I guess that's where most of us are coming from. But as conservative evangelicals, we need to recognize the vital importance of the Holy Spirit. And when it comes to mission, it is the Holy Spirit who takes us and helps us and strengthens us. And without the Spirit of God, there is no mission at all. That's why Pentecost is so important. So what is the meaning of Pentecost? What's happening on the day of Pentecost? As we look at this passage together, can I ask three questions? Number one, when did it happen? Number two, what took place? Number three, why is it important? Number one, when did it happen? Look at verse one. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. In chapter one, they've been told to wait. Uh, Jesus has ascended to heaven, and for ten days, the church is praying and waiting for something to happen. They're in the upper room, they're all together, they've appointed a replacement for Judas, and they're still waiting. Whether they know it's the day of Pentecost, that the, this great gift of the Spirit is going to come, we don't know, but they're waiting. And then in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, if you've got the old authorised version, you know that, that in, the, in the Greek it's literally something like when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And the emphasis there in the Greek is simply to say this is the day and no other day. The emphasis is that it's not a day before and it's not a day afterwards. It was this day. This was the specific day in God's timetable when he would give the gift of the Spirit to the church. Passover, which is the day when Jesus was crucified, was the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. 
And from that day, they counted 50 more days, exactly 50 days from Passover, and then is the day of Pentecost. And this is the deliberate day in God's timetable when the Spirit will be given to the church. That's not an accident. In God's timetable, it is quite deliberate that the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. Why? Can I suggest two reasons? The first reason is that in the Jewish calendar, Pentecost is the festival of first fruits. It's the celebration of first fruits. Jews have three harvests in the Old Testament Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. The, fast, uh, the Feast of, of Pentecost was the ingathering of the first barley sheaves, and what you got at Pentecost was a foretaste of the full harvest. If you go into your fields before Pentecost and and there's lots of uh, barley there, then you gather in great big armfuls and you bring them in as a sacrifice, as an offering to God in the temple, and it's a sign that the harvest is going to be a magnificent harvest. Lots of sheaves of of barley at Pentecost means a great harvest. If it's it's a meagre harvest, you know that the harvest that's going to come eventually in the full harvest time is going to be a meagre harvest. In other words, what you get in Pentecost is a foretaste of the full and final harvest. Do you get that? Are you still with me? Okay. So what you get on the day of Pentecost, if it's a big uh, harvest, then you know that the final harvest is going to be magnificent. What happens on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes? Well, have a look down, if you will, at verse 41. Peter finishes preaching. Those who accepted his message were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, let me ask you a question, and uh, you can put your hand up this time if you want. Has anybody ever been at a meeting where 3,000 people were converted? Has anybody ever heard of a meeting where 3,000 people were converted, apart from Acts chapter 2? I never have. I've been at great crusades, I've been at crusades where people stream forward to the front and uh, whether all of those are converted or not, I don't know, but I've never been at one where it's been anything like a thousand people, never mind two thousand, never mind three thousand people. What's happening on the day of Pentecost is the first fruits of the harvest are so magnificent that God says, if this is what I'm doing today, you just think about what the ultimate harvest will be. Isn't that magnificent? You can look excited if you like. You are allowed to. What God is saying on the day of Pentecost is with the power of the Spirit, my mission will not fail. I will call people from every tribe and tongue and nation so that in the book of Revelation when John sees it, there's so many that he cannot number them. Brothers and sisters, we may feel as if we're in the minority at the moment. We may feel as if the church is in retreat, but Jesus will see of the travail of his soul and he will be satisfied. I mean, we're going to hear tonight about China. We we tend to look at mission and we tend to look at evangelism from the West where where in all the years I've been a Christian, it looks as if the church is in retreat. In other parts of the world, they wouldn't understand if we said the church is in retreat. I I don't want to talk about China because I've got an expert on my right and I'm terrified I might say something wrong, but uh, a couple of weeks ago I was preaching in Wales. And uh, uh, in Wales, they were telling me I had a man man, um, called Robert Thomas. Have you heard of Robert Thomas? Robert Thomas was a missionary who went to uh, Korea 150 years ago, exactly 150 years ago. He translated portions of God's word into Korean, and he went to preach the gospel in Korea, and when he landed, he was killed. He hardly had any chance to do missionary work, and all these well-prepared portions of God's word translated into the Korean language fell to the ground. 
One of the guards, one of the men who murdered him, picked up these, these, these uh, pieces of paper and he took them home and in a bizarre development, he papered the walls of his house with them. And then he made a massive, massive mistake. He read his wallpaper <laughs> and got converted. <laughs> and that was one of the first men in Korea to be converted. Today, it's been estimated that something between 30 and 40% of people in South Korea are Christians. Next to the United States of America, I think it's true to say that more people are being sent to the mission field from South Korea than any other country on uh, earth. I was preaching in a city in northern England when I met a South Korean missionary who'd been sent from South Korea to work with Muslims in Bradford. Can you imagine that? He described himself to me as a charismatic pre uh, Presbyterian Baptist, which is kind of quite a combination, but there you go. See the point? What did Jesus say? The seed will fall into the ground. If it, if it remains above the ground, it will not bear fruit. But if it falls into the ground and dies, it will bear much fruit. Jesus falls into the ground, he dies, he rises again, he ascends to heaven, he receives the gift of the Spirit, he pours the Spirit on the church, and what happens? 3,000 are converted. That's the first fruits. Later it's 5,000. Then they stop counting, and the church continues to grow. Brothers and sisters, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the sign of Pentecost, with the Spirit of God, the living Spirit, in the midst of the church. What a wonderful thing. So that's the first reason why it's the day of Pentecost. Can I suggest that there's another reason? There's another reason that, 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 that we can find in, in the Scriptures. Um, uh, when, the, when the Jews celebrated their harvest festivals, those three harvest festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, they were remembering great events in their history. Passover was the Exodus and the, the, the slaughter of the lamb just as Jesus is killed on the cross and, and we shelter under his blood, the Passover. Tabernacles was celebrating the, uh, the, the wanderings in the wilderness. They built little tents in order to remember that God was with them in the wilderness. What about Pentecost? Well, Pentecost was when Jews remembered the gift of the law on Mount Sinai. They would read from that portion of God's word in Exodus 19 and 20, at that moment in time when Moses went into the mountain, he ascended to the mountain, he met with God, he received the gift of the law and he came down and he gave the gift of the law to God's people bringing into existence the, new, the, the, the covenant the covenant that was established at Sinai that was what they would remember at Pentecost and so it was a greater moment, a greater crowd but you remember what happened on that particular day in the Old Testament when God, Moses comes down he's been in the mountain for 40 days he comes down and he finds that the people have rebelled and they're worshipping idols and so there is a judgment of God. And so at the very inception of the Old Covenant, there's an act of condemnation and there's an act of judgment. Turn with you, if you will, to the book of Exodus, just for a moment. Exodus and to uh, chapter 32. Moses has been in the mountain. The people are down below are committing spiritual adultery. Forty days after promising that they will be a faithful bride to Yahweh their God, they're committing spiritual adultery. They're turning to idols. They're worshipping a golden calf. It's like a man and a woman getting married, and uh, just 40 days into the marriage, the man comes home one day and he finds his wife in the arms of another man. That's what it was like. And so the, the initial pronouncement is an announcement of judgment. And God will destroy these people, and Moses intercedes. And then God says, well, I will have mercy, but there will be judgment nonetheless. Look at verse 30, uh, 27. Exodus 32 and verse 27. 
Then he said to me, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day, that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Now, is that a random number? Is that an accidental number? I don't think so. I think that when the Old Covenant is instituted, the Old Covenant brings judgment and condemnation, and 3,000 people lose their lives. Come to the New Covenant. What happens in the New Covenant in Acts chapter 2? Moses ascends to the mountain. Jesus ascends to heaven. Moses receives the gift of the law. Jesus receives the gift of the Spirit. Moses comes down and it brings condemnation. Jesus sends the Spirit down and what happens? Not condemnation in the new covenant, it's salvation. Verse 41, 3,000 were added to the church that day. Isn't that exciting? Isn't it wonderful to be under the new covenant? which is not a covenant of condemnation, but a covenant of grace. See how Paul writes about it. Turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians and chapter 3. 2 Corinthians and chapter 3. Paul draws this out, this difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 7. Now, if the ministry, 2 Corinthians 3, 7, now, if the ministry that brought death was uh, engraved in letters of stone, which came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Look down at verse, uh, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the, from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What is happening on the day of Pentecost is this inauguration of the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, isn't it wonderful to be part of the new covenant? Uh, isn't it wonderful to be part of the new covenant? I mean, all sorts of wonderful things. For a start-off, you can, you can eat bacon. Isn't that great? You know, I had bacon for my breakfast because I'm a New Covenant believer. You know, justification, sanctification, glorification and bacon. Isn't it marvellous to be a Christian? But more than that, this is not a judgment or a condemnatory covenant. It's a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of mercy. We have a message of salvation to proclaim to the nations. It's good news, isn't it? It's gospel. It's not a message of judgment, it's a message of God's overwhelming, glorious grace. And it begins on the day of Pentecost when Jesus gives the gift of the new covenant, the Spirit, to the church. The church is born with new covenant power. Can I say this, and I say this very gently, sometimes I listen to people preaching the gospel and, and, and it's kind of 45 minutes condemnation and then just a little bit of grace at the end. We need to be clear that men and women are lost and they need Christ and, and, and if they die without Christ they will go to hell. I have no question about that at all. But often we present the gospel as if it's, if it's a, a, a new kind of self-righteousness. No, it's the grace of God. Yeah, we should be excited about the gospel, shouldn't we? We had a lady converted in our home just a few years ago. And uh, the moment she was converted, she said, what should I do now? And I said, well, tell somebody. So she went home, she got her address book, and for the next four hours she phoned everybody in the address book and said, I want to tell you something, I've been converted, isn't it wonderful? I'm saved, I'm a Christian now, isn't it wonderful? For four hours she phoned everybody. And at the end of four hours she was really hungry, she said, I need something to eat. It's a lot of witnessing, isn't it? 
So she went to the fish and chip shop, and just as the man was putting the, 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 the salt and vinegar on a fish and chip, she suddenly thought, well, he needs to know as well. And she said, can I tell you something? He said, yes, I've just become a Christian. It's wonderful, I'm saved. He said, oh, better give you an extra piece of fish then. <laughs> and he did. It only works once, I'm told. But listen to me, we should be excited about the gospel. We're new covenant believers. The Spirit has come to make Jesus real. In the Old Testament, the Spirit comes on to individuals. Now the Spirit lives in every believer. It is glorious to be a Christian. And it all begins there on the day of Pentecost. That's the when. What about the what? What actually happens on the day of Pentecost? Well, if you look at verses 2 down to verse 4, there are three events, there are three things, there are three signs, wind and fire and other languages. Notice verse 2, suddenly. We're back in Acts chapter 2 again. Suddenly. This is a dynamic, unique, supernatural event. It's a miraculous event. The church didn't begin with a committee meeting. Do you like committee meetings? If you do, there's something wrong with you. Uh, uh, the church didn't begin by, it didn't organize it. God broke in. What, what's happening on the day of Pentecost is supernatural. God breaks in. God does something. God breathes life into the church. It's not just like the creation. The creation couldn't create itself. You know, a big bang won't create itself. God must have brought creation into existence. He breathes it into existence. He speaks it and he does the same with the church. Pentecost is a supernatural event, and there are three signs. The first sign is wind. Look at verse 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. We're not talking about a kind of a, a nice little breeze here. We're talking about a heavenly hurricane. The wind comes, and I would imagine the place shook. And of course, in the Bible, the wind is often a sign of the coming of God. So he blows on the sea and it parts, or he meets Job in the whirlwind. Or Ezekiel sees the, the, this mighty and, and terrifying wind which, which represents God. What is the symbol of the wind? What does it stand for? Well, two things. Invincible power and irresistible life. Invincible power. We're not talking about a gentle breeze here. We're talking about a wind that, 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 that is mighty and powerful. Brothers and sisters, our God is the sovereign God. Our God will not be defeated ultimately in his mission in this world. The mission of God and the purpose of God faces many barriers. In our own nation, we face secularism, we face the growth of Islam. Back in Birmingham, where I was ministering for a number of years, Islam is, is rampant, and, and, and secularism is rampant, and, and all sorts of things are happening, and it's easy to lose sight. Brothers and sisters, we are on the winning side. And in the end, the Lamb will be glorified. And in the end, he will conquer his enemies, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. One day, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. We mustn't underestimate the almighty power of our God. So often these days we, 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 have, a, we have a false view of God, a, a, almost a pathetic view of God. Remember what Amy Carmichael said? God is never outmaneuvered. God is never taken by surprise. There is never panic or crisis in heaven. God doesn't have problems. He only has plans. God doesn't have problems. He only has plans. In North Korea, where is the greatest persecution of the church at this present time, on the world watch list, North Korea is, is number one. God has plans in North Korea. The Spirit of God doesn't stop at the border of North Korea and say that's a no-go area. The wind blows where it wills. The wind is a symbol of the sovereign power of God, the mighty power of God. Invincible power and irresistible life. 
irresistible life. God breathes life into the church. You know, at the beginning in Genesis 1, God takes the dust of the earth and he breathes into the dust and, and, and man becomes a living soul. The difference between life and death, the difference between chaos and order is the breath of God, the irresistible life of God. And what's happening? God is breathing life, the life of, of the Spirit of God into his church. You know, no one has ever been converted without the gift of the Holy Spirit. No one has ever been argued into the kingdom of God. Every single conversion is a miracle. I was here on, on, on Saturday evening and I, I heard the tremendous examples and, and, and testimonies of these guys on my right. Tremendous miracles. God broke into the lives of these guys and I praise God for that. But you know, a little girl in the Sunday school who comes back and says, I've just invited Jesus into my heart, is just as much a miracle. Everyone is, because we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're blind, we can't see without the gospel. Sin is all prevailing. It, 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 it's touched every part of our lives. It's what the old theologians used to call total depravity. It doesn't mean that it's as bad as we could be, but it means that we will never come to Christ without the gospel and without the power of God. We're spiritually dead. I remember years ago, one of the first places I ever preached was in a little village chapel. And it was a ladies' meeting. And when I'd finished, this, this, this little old lady called me across. She must have been, you know... 173 or something and she, she called me across and she said oh thank you for that she said you remind me of my brother you're just like my brother I said what tall dark and handsome she said no he's dead <laughs> oh, I never got what it meant yet still don't understand it but why is it that we preach the gospel and people don't respond you know you go to some great evangelistic meeting and you're sat there with your friend and, 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 the, and the gospel is so wonderfully presented and, the, and, and you just kind of think wow I, I wish I wasn't a Christian because I'd like to be saved tonight again and at the end you turn to him and say what do you think couldn't understand a word how can you because people need spiritual life and what happens when the wind of the spirit comes it's the presence of God it's the life of God in the soul of man and so what happens God gives life to his church the power of the wind. The second symbol, of course, is the symbol of fire. Look at verse, uh, verse 3. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. John the Baptist had said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus himself says, I come to bring fire. What is the fire? It's a symbol of God's purity and God's holiness. Um, of all the things I've said this morning, maybe what I'm about to say is the single most important thing, so listen carefully. The most important thing we need to remember about the Holy Spirit is not his power, but his personality. The Holy Spirit is not a force or an energy or a thing. The Holy Spirit is a person. And therefore, in our relationship with God and our relationship with the Holy Spirit, we have to be holy. We mustn't think of the Holy Spirit in terms of receiving energy or, or, or receiving some power or, or something we don't have. It's all about a relationship with God. So, so Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit against whom you were sealed, by whom you were sealed against the day of redemption. And we need to be very careful that, that in our purity of life and the things that we do, in the things that we watch, in the things that we say, we don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to make us holy. He comes to burn off the dross and the sin in our lives. And we must think of him in personal terms. The Holy Spirit comes as fire. So we have these two symbols, wind and fire. One is God's power and life, the other is God's purity. If you put them together, they are symbols of the presence of God. They're symbols of what, what theologians sometimes call theophany. 
the presence of God manifest in the midst of his people. And when you, when you see wind and fire in the Old Testament, very often it's God coming to visit his people. What's happening on the day of Pentecost? Quite simply, God is coming to dwell in the midst of the church. Almighty God is coming to dwell in the very heart and in the very midst of his people. What is the most exciting thing about the church? Shall I tell you what it is? It is the, is the dwelling place of Almighty God. It is the temple by where God dwells with his, by his spirit. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, you're built, and we're not talking about a building here, of course. We're talking about God's people. Whether it's in a beautiful building like this or in, in secret in North Korea, wherever it is, wherever God's people gather, God is there. God is there. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that wonderful? One of my friends used to go to America quite regularly. When he arrived in America, uh, he always went to uh, the Baptist church where Jimmy Carter used to worship while he was president. So it's a few years ago now. And he said, Jimmy Carter would, would come to the church some Sunday mornings. And you always knew when he was coming because the first hymn would start and these uh, secret service men would walk down the aisle and they'd take a look to make sure everything was, was kosher. And then they'd call the president and President Jimmy Carter and his wife would come and they'd sit on the front row with their daughter. And then at the end, just before the, the last service or the last hymn as it was being sung, the president would leave. My friend happened to ask the pastor of this church what Sunday. You know, you, you have the president of the United States at your church on a Sunday. Did people ever come to the church because they think the president's going to be there? And he said, the pastor smiled. And he said, every Saturday night, without exception, without ex- I get a phone call, sometimes three or four phone calls. And people say, oh, what time's your service tomorrow morning, such and such? And uh, by the way, will the president be there? And he said, I always answer in the same way. I don't know because they don't tell me it's a matter of security. And this is what I say, I don't know whether the president will be there or not tomorrow, but let me tell you this, if you come to our church tomorrow, you will meet with somebody far more important, far more significant and far more glorious than the president of the United States of America, because tomorrow God will be there. We're coming together to meet with the living God. What happens on the day of Pentecost? What's the meaning of Pentecost? It is God in his glory, in his power, in his majesty, coming to dwell in the midst of his people, by the power of his spirit. So the first symbol, the first sign is wind, and the second one is uh, fire. And of course the third one is speaking in other languages or tongues. Have a look at verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And it's 25 past 12. So if you want to find out what that's about you have to come back tomorrow. (laughs) Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much that you love your church and you have empowered your church with your spirit and the spirit has come in order to drive the church out in mission to a lost world. Father, we thank you that his heart is for mission. We thank you that, that, that the great message we have is not a message of condemnation, but it is a message of grace and mercy. It's a message of salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you that the the gospel will conquer this world and, and that God will call out a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Thank you that he is doing it and he will continue to do it and Jesus until Jesus Christ returns. Oh Lord help us to help us to trust and help us to go forward in your name and to trust and believe you for great things. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.